Hey y'all, you're listening to Link in the Chain, a bi-weekly podcast that aims to reveal the depth and vastness of hip-hop one episode at a time. We take our favorite methodologies, albums, artists, and songs and strip them to their core, figuring out what exactly makes them so magnetic. I'm your host, Jillian Grace. Let's get started. I'm just doing what Pete did for me. Pete Brain did for me and what James Brown did for them. It's still just a fan of forward. I just always look at it as a link in the chain, man. Like, it's a link in the chain. When I was a junior in high school, I had a boyfriend. (laughs) Our love language was music, and he would constantly put me on to all of the artists that I wasn't hip to. A Tribe Called Quest, The Far Side, Chance the Rapper, BJ the Chicago Kid. You name an artist, and there's a strong possibility that he introduced me to them. When he wasn't breaking down song meanings and structures to me in Best Buy parking lots, he was burning albums and mixtapes onto blank CDs that we'd listen to while riding around in my mama's car. It was apparent that he had a deep love and respect for the genre. He was an artist in his own right, so to him, it wasn't just music. It was his life. I jokingly referred to myself as someone who's adjacent to a hip-hop head. And that's honestly because he was my first textbook example of what a hip-hop head looked like. There's one day in particular that is forever etched into my brain. The year was 2011, and it was a crisp fall day. The leaves were turning into gorgeous shades of gold and orange, and the sun was beaming. In typical fashion, my ex pulled out a CD from his book bag, ejected the current CD, and slid a new one into its place. The record that played went a little something like this. Gather round. I'm glad everybody came out tonight. As we stand on our neighborhood corner, know that this fire that's burning represents the passion you have. Listen. Keisha, Tammy, come up front. I recognize all of you. Every creed and color. With that being said, fuck your ethnicity. You understand that? We can talk about a lot of shit that concerns you. Only you. to like anything my ex played because one I was an impressionable teenage girl (laughs) and two because that was my boo that was my person but to say that I was shook would be a complete understatement I was intrigued by it all the first few seconds of the track where you heard nothing but the sound of flames crackling the deep bass voice addressing a group of people the emphasis that that same voice put on the word fuck it immediately captured and kept my attention a few bars later i was introduced to a new voice a voice of a rapper that seemingly floated on the beat but also had a way of sitting in the pocket perfectly the person spoke highly about hip hop likening it to hypnosis and his personal way of escape 
He confidently rapped about how ethnicity and race weren't a barrier to the music he created and welcomed all who would listen. I soon learned that the album I heard that day was Section 80, and the voice I heard belonged to Kendrick Lamar. In the weeks that followed that fateful day, his music received the same care and attention that I gave to Andre 3000 back in 07. Okay, I dug up every article and every interview that I could find. I not only came across his mixtapes, but the mixtapes of Black Hippie, a group formed by his label mates on TDE consisting of himself, Absol, J-Rock, and Schoolboy Q. Not only was I digging up mixtapes and verses, but I saw how the group would quote each other's lyrics and carry out reoccurring themes amongst one another's tracks. I didn't know it then, but connecting those dots and putting the pieces of their musical puzzle together back then was the beginning of my love for analysis. So this episode is dedicated to Kendrick. Now, I could talk about a couple of things. I could talk about how he single-handedly solidified himself as King of the West over the course of just four albums, the legacy that he's currently creating through his production company PG Lang and rapper protege Baby Keem. To be honest, I could really just remind y'all that he won a Pulitzer Prize for Damn and end the episode right there, but that would be too easy. This week, we're going to focus on one of the many chains that Lamar has managed to create in his music, a chain that spans across three albums. Let's get it, let's get it, let's get it, let's get it. Hey, hey. <laughs> On October 22, 2012, rapper Kendrick Lamar released his sophomore album, Good Kid, Mad City. The album follows a young Kendrick growing up in Compton, California. It's a coming-of-age story, recounting everything from voicemails from his mama for keeping her van out a little too long, to Lamar getting jumped by gang members. Ultimately, Lamar approaches a proverbial fork in the road and must make the decision to either continue down the path that he's currently on or pave a new road for himself through music. But this album is not an ordinary coming-of-age, boy-meets-world story. Good Kid, Mad City is not just another concept album. It features legends MCI and Dr. Dre, solidifying Kendrick as West Coast royalty. The album is certified triple platinum and, according to Forbes, surpassed Eminem's The Eminem Show and became the longest-charting hip-hop studio album on the Billboard 200 back in 2019. Mad City earned Lamar several award nominations, including the infamous Grammy snub for Best Rap Album, which... Macklemore? <laughs> really? That's, your, that's, that's who y'all chose? Whatever. Anywho, <laughs> those who didn't know Kendrick before this album definitely knew him afterwards. It was just that special. The climax of the album comes from the song Sing About Me, I'm Dying of Thirst, where Kendrick and his friends have just witnessed the death of one of their own. In the song, Lamar raps in first person, first speaking from the viewpoint of his deceased brother's friend, and then from another character who is a sex worker. We'll dig into both of these stories a little later, but let's first take a quick listen to the song.
when the lights shut off and it's my turn to settle down my main concern promise that you will sing about me promise that you will sing about me i said when the lights shut off and it's my turn to settle down my main concern promise that you will sing about me promise that you will The lights turning off is a metaphor for death. So in the song, the characters are asking that when they pass away, to be memorialized, for their stories to continue to be told, and for their legacies to live on. What you may not have known, though, is that this song samples a jazz artist who eerily lived the same life. This person didn't solidify his legacy and significance until years after his untimely death. His name is Grant Green. Let's take a moment and listen to the original song, This is Maybe Tomorrow. Green was born in St. Louis on June 6, 1931, and learned his instrument in grade school from his guitar-playing father. His extensive foundation in both boogie-woogie and R&B allowed him to perform with the likes of Herbie Hancock, McCoy Tyner, and Joe Henderson. However, an ongoing battle with drugs brought Green's career to a screeching halt. After being hospitalized for a year, he died in 1979 at the age of 43. Green was a severely underrated player during his lifetime and is considered to be one of the unsung heroes of jazz guitar. Jazz Times refers to him as simultaneously one of the most and least celebrated guitars in jazz history. It wasn't until his tragic death that more and more of his shelved music came to light. Today, groups like A Tribe Called Quest, Cypress Hill, and even Wu-Tang have sampled his soulful work. In episode two, Sample This, I talk about the power of sampling. Whether producer Sky Hutch did it purposely or not, I can't help but think of how impressive this choice was. It's very likely that the beat came first, but the awareness that Kendrick raps with is remarkable. The song immortalizes the three of them, the two characters that he raps as, and Grant Green. But this sample, quite frankly, is the tip of the iceberg. The two people that Kendrick mentions in the song are in fact real people, and the stories he shares are very much real as well. Let's rewind back to Kendrick's debut album, Section 80, and a track that appears on the project entitled Keisha Song. Kendrick speaks in detail about a woman, whom the narrator also mentions within the first few seconds of the album at that communal bonfire. That in itself is a small indication that this may be someone who Kendrick knows personally. In the song, he raps about how the woman is a sex worker, a victim of molestation, and is presumably raped and killed by one of her clients. Fancy girls on Long Beach Boulevard 
flagging down all of these flashy cars. One thing that stands out the most to me about this track is Kendrick's choice to start and end his raps almost identically in all of his verses. He begins each by saying, And Lord knows she's beautiful. Lord knows the usual is leaving her body sore. And ends it by recalling how he sees the El Camino parked a block away from Looters Park. This type of repetition alludes to Kendrick seeing this woman on a regular, if not daily basis. Another thing I think is worth mentioning is the fact that he repeats these lyrics three times on all three of his verses. In the Christian religion, the number three symbolizes harmony, God's presence, and completeness. It represents the Holy Trinity, made up by the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Jesus even rose from the dead on the third day after being crucified. Kendrick is no stranger to Christianity ideologies and makes mention of the religion quite frequently throughout his discography. Hence, the prayer of salvation that opens and closes Mad City and him believing that he met Jesus at a gas station onto Pimp a Butterfly. I believe that Kendrick's choice to have these three verses, beginning and ending the same way, represents a holiness and a purity that he saw in Keisha. The song could have been thought of as a lament or a prayer, something that Jesus also did three times in the Garden of Gethsemane before he came to peace with having to die on the cross. But not everyone thought that this song was profound or even appropriate. In Sing About Me, the second verse is from the perspective of Keisha's sister, who didn't appreciate Kendrick calling out her deceased sibling. As a Black woman, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that as interesting as this link is, it is harmful as well. The requests of Black women are too often overlooked and disregarded. Yes, he is a masterful storyteller. Yes, he is still better than your favorite rapper. <laughs> However, Kendrick should have respected her wishes and not put this on wax. Period. In the first verse of Sing About Me, Kendrick speaks from the perspective of his deceased friend's brother, the person whose death he witnessed just a track earlier on Swimming Pools. The brother has a different tone from Keisha's sister, thanking Lamar for looking out for his brother and running to his aid when he was dying. But the story doesn't stop there. On his 2014 album, To Pimp a Butterfly, Kendrick tells a seemingly new story on the track These Walls. To the unaware listener, the groovy beat and Anna Wise's pointed voice could be mistaken for another feel-good song, but as you listen, you see and feel just how dark it is. The song opens with the sounds of a woman moaning. Whether it's from pain or pleasure is entirely up to the listener. As Kendrick raps, we learn that the track's title can be interpreted in three different ways. A person's vaginal walls, the walls of someone's mind or conscience, or the one we'll focus on prison walls. walls telling you to listen to sing about me retaliation strong you even dream about me kill my homeboy and god spared your life dumb criminal got indicted same night so when you play the song rewind the first verse about me abusing my power so you can hurt about me and her in the shower whenever she horny about me and her in the after hours of the morning about her baby daddy currently serving life and how she think about you until we meet up at night about the only girl cared about you when you asked her and how she fucking on the famous rapper walls can talk 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 We soon learn that the moaning we hear at the beginning of the record belongs to a woman who's involved with the man who killed Lamar's friend back in the day. The same friend who was mentioned on Sing About Me. Kendrick abuses his newfound success and power and sleeps with her, leaving her significant other, who's currently behind bars, unable to retaliate. Karma is not above Kendrick, and the walls of his mind begin to deteriorate due to his actions. 
But at the end of the album, he finds solace and the peace of mind that he so desperately needed. The examples I talked about in today's episode are just my findings. These links, especially when it comes to concept albums, can be found in so many different projects. What's your favorite link in the chain? Who is your favorite storyteller in hip-hop or any other genre for that matter? I know that I have some dope listeners and I'd love to hear from y'all. Or maybe you have a comment or feedback that doesn't necessarily relate to this week's episode. And girl, that's okay too. (laughs) Even though I'm doing this pod solo, I created it as a way to have conversations, not just for me to talk at y'all. Yes, I built the table, but what good is the table if I have to sit at it alone? So slide into my DMs, sound off in my comments, shoot, you can send a note by carrier pigeon, okay? Whatever you want to do. <laughs> you can reach me on Link's IG or on my personal page at Jillian Grace W. I can't wait to connect with you all. Thanks again for tuning into Link in the Chain. The theme song was produced by Hype Alexander. All research, producing, and recording was done by myself, Jillian Grace. If you like what you heard in this episode, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the show. Thanks again. See y'all in two weeks.